Welcome all ye pod listeners. This is Wooden Teeth. My name is Jake Williams. Today on the pod, we have Lisa Rayville. She is the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center. And to understand what Lisa does there, it'd be useful to acquaint yourself with the concept of harm reduction if you're not already. Harm reduction is a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at reducing negative consequences associated with drug use. Harm reduction is also a movement for social justice built on the belief in and respect for the rights of people who use drugs. So, at the Harm Reduction Action Center, which is located here in Denver, they support substance abuse prevention and treatment efforts, but they also directly deal with the reality that people will continue to inject drugs, so they provide clean needles to prevent the spread of HIV and hepatitis C. Lisa also engages lawmakers, healthcare providers, and law enforcement on public health and safety issues related to drug use. She's also been at the forefront of the movement here in Denver to create what would potentially be the nation's first supervised use site for people who inject drugs. A supervised use site is a place where people could access sterile needles and legally inject drugs under medical supervision. There would also be information about drugs and basic health care as well as treatment referrals. It's a controversial issue. On one side, you have people who contend that we can't get people into rehab if they're dead, and supervised use sites support the strategy of keeping people alive until they're ready to do so. On the other side, people contend that we're simply encouraging drug use by allowing it, and many people don't want these sites in their neighborhoods. The issue is less controversial in some other countries, uh, as at least 100 supervised use sites currently operate around the world, mostly in Europe, Canada, and Australia. Last year, the Denver City Council approved a measure that would allow for the operation of a supervised use facility, but in order for the measure to be actionable, the state legislature would have to pass a bill to allow it. And even then, the federal government has threatened to take action against their operation if supervised use sites are established. Meanwhile, at least a dozen other cities around the United States are considering creating these sites. So, this is a timely conversation with somebody at the center of this issue. Here is my chat with Lisa Rayville. Lisa Rayville, welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you are the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center. What is harm reduction? Sure, it reduces the harms associated with drug use. Um, you know, folks are on a continuum, anywhere from safer use to managed use to abstinence. Abstinence is a friend of harm reduction. It's just simply not a requirement. Uh, we use harm reduction every day in every way with designated drivers, reduces the harms associated with their drunkenness, uh, seatbelts, condoms. I know exactly what the kids are doing out there. So we do that in relation to drug use. We are in the midst of an overdose epidemic, and there's one positive thing that folks can do today. So within the context of drug use, how do you reduce harm? Uh, it sounds like from, from what you said, there is um, some level of inherent acceptance that they are going to do these drugs because addiction doesn't have kind of logical limits uh, to behavior always. So what do you do to make it less harmful, it being drug addiction, being uh, be less harmful? Sure, so we work with people who inject drugs. Uh, we have black tar heroin in Colorado, which is difficult to snort and expensive to smoke, so you almost have to exclusively inject it. So when we're talking about heroin in Colorado, we're specifically talking about people who inject heroin. We also have folks that inject meth once or twice a day. Uh, some people inject cocaine 12 to 15 times a day. Heroin users inject uh, heroin three to five times a day, so we want to 
reduce the harms associated with that. So we have access to syringes. Um, they, you know, the, with the opportunity to dispose properly of used syringes, access to sterile syringes to prevent and eliminate the transmission of HIV and hepatitis C. We offer folks resources and referrals, um, access to naloxone, which saves people's life in the event of an opioid overdose, health education classes, street outreach. So what we're doing is creating a relationship with a very marginalized population that when they want to do something different, we're the first folks they come to. Have you administered naloxone on site at your facility? Yes, in the last nine years, we've had 15 overdoses happen in and around our agency. And were you able to save those 15 people? Yep, they're all still alive. And so what does a typical day look like at, at your facility? What happens? Sure, so we run a drop-in Monday through Friday, nine to noon. We see between 120 and 150 people per morning being proactive about their health. Uh, over 70% of our folks are homeless or transitionally housed upon intake. So sometimes we kind of are kind of like a homeless day shelter for folks too. They're able to get mail there, so they'll check their mail. They'll do syringe access. They'll get access to naloxone. We have fentanyl testing strips where folks can test to see if their drugs have uh, the presence of fentanyl or fentanyl analogs. They would have to do that offsite, obviously. Um, we do resources and referrals. We sit with folks for a healthier and safer them. And then at noon, we switched over to health education classes. Um, so we have two. One's called Strive, to be a peer educator in your drug and social network without being a nag. Nobody likes that guy. And then HIV Hep C 101, to talk about the commonalities and differences between HIV and hepatitis C. We have um, we do mobile street outreach in high drug traffic areas. Harm reduction meets people where they're at in the spectrum of change and then literally meets people where they're at. We also take technical assistance very, um, very seriously. So we work with folks that um, our folks come in contact with that it could be unlikely allies. So in the afternoons, law enforcement comes in for tours, healthcare providers, parole, probation to see what we are and what we simply aren't so that they can go ahead and refer folks. And then we do admin stuff like that. I think you'd agree that using these types of drugs is unhealthy and puts people at risk of death. So why don't you nag? Why, why, why aren't you um, pushing them more than you already do to seek treatment or uh, pursue a path of abstinence? I think they know that the world wants them abstinent. And for one reason or another, it's not going to happen today. We know that if you have a felony within seven years, violent or not in Denver, it's very difficult to obtain housing. So it's a very tall ask to ask homeless folks to be sober. There's a lot of reasons why people use drugs and it's not on me to judge why they are. But what we can do is create a relationship for a healthier and safer them today. And not only a healthier and safer person who uses drugs, but also the larger community too, to be responsive of you know appropriate syringe disposal and making sure that folks have access to naloxone or Narcan. I mean, 189 law enforcement departments in the state are currently carrying Narcan. Denver Police Department was the first. Uh, Colorado Springs PD was the second. So even law enforcement is shifting more to public health. Um, incarceration doesn't work with drug use. Stigma and shame have never worked with drug use. So we're creating that relationship and pushing forward and walking with them today, whatever that looks like. So you take a position of non-judgment when it comes to people using uh, these drugs. I understand mm -hmm. that. But of course, other people have judged you and this approach, uh, harm reduction in uh, dealing with drug addiction in that they say that despite good intentions, essentially helping people do more drugs doesn't help people become unaddicted from drugs. What do you say to those objections? 
We believe if people want to live a life of recovery, they shouldn't have to live with preventable chronic diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C. We believe if people don't want to live a life of recovery, they shouldn't have to live with preventable diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C. I think we can agree that we need treatment expansion and more on-demand treatment. Denver Health's emergency department is a good first step, but there are quite a few barriers to getting into substance use treatment today in the state of Colorado, but we do know that people are going to use today. So what we can do is make sure to make it healthier and safer to keep people alive. We are in the midst of an overdose epidemic. And quite frankly, dead drug users do not have the opportunity for recovery. So last year, Denver City Council approved a measure that would allow for the operation of a, of a facility in which people could use injectable drugs like heroin under the supervision of medical personnel. But in order for that uh, measure to be actionable, the state legislature would have to pass a bill to allow it. But if they did that, Denver would be the first city in the United States to allow such a facility. I know you were supportive um, and a driving force, in, in fact, uh, behind this measure. When did you first hear about this idea and what was your initial reaction when you first heard of the concept? Mm -hmm. So I've been the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center for the last 10 years. So I've dedicated the last 10 years of my career to serving people who inject drugs. When I first became the executive director, we didn't even have legal syringe access in the state. So we had to get that first and foremost. When that passed, I thought when a bill becomes a law, a bill becomes a law and you wrap it up and move on with your life. 21 months later, we were able to begin. Right after we got access to syringes, then we needed access to naloxone. My folks were dying, especially in industrial areas, uh, pushed to the extremes because they couldn't stay on the 16th Street Mall anymore due to the urban camping ban. So over the years, we've passed seven pieces of statewide legislation, four to reduce the harms associated with overdose, three to reduce the harms associated with um, syringe criminalization. So I simply uh, work with people who inject drugs. I serve people who inject drugs. And when they tell me they're struggling and they need something different, then I'm the one that goes to city council. Or I'm the one that goes to the state capitol and says, we are struggling and we need your help. Right now, what we know is if over 70% of folks are homeless or transitionally housed upon intake, they're injecting outside, in alleys, in, bar in parks, and in business bathrooms. They prioritize business bathrooms first for three reasons. One is because you can close the door so the cops don't come up on you like they could in an alley. Two is so the larger community and kids don't see them, and they're very clear about that. And then three is having access to sterile water. All drugs need to be made as blood-like as possible to inject. When folks don't have access to sterile water, it doesn't mean they don't inject. It means they use toilet tank water, river water, or saliva. So what happened was, is over the last four years, I've lost uh, 18 of my participants to public overdose deaths, alleys, uh, parks, uh, coffee bathrooms, um, let's see, grocery store bathrooms, at least two of them. And so not only am, are we losing good people in these public places, but somebody's coming up on them and finding them. And so in January of 2017, we lost seven participants to drug-related deaths in a two-week period, six to overdose. And I said, no more. And so we had heard about supervised use sites happening in 10 countries for you know, the last 20 years. And we thought we have to start that fight. Because what we also know too, is that we wanna take injecting out of the public sphere and put it into a controlled environment. We know that if people are injecting in an alley or a, a park, it, they, that means they tried to go to a business bathroom first and simply couldn't get in there. And so not only are people injecting in public spaces, they're overdosing there. And not only are they overdosing there, they're dying of overdoses there. And it used to just be law enforcement would come up on somebody uh, that was publicly overdosing, especially dying of an overdose. Now it's 17-year-old baristas. 
And I think that we shouldn't we shouldn't be okay with that. And we need to have a plan. I've talked about supervised use sites with a lot of my friends. And um, a lot of these friends are progressives. And for at least a few of them, they'll begin their reaction to my raising of the topic with something along the lines of, I know that science says, and then proceed to express discomfort with with the proposal, mm -hmm. um, you know, and whenever I hear the preamble of, I know that the sign says this, and then they say the opposite, it, it's kind of akin to like to saying, you know, I know this might sound racist, but right. you know, nothing yeah, good yeah. is gonna, <laughs> <laughs> nothing Great. good is coming in that second part. That's right. I mean, why do you think people have such a hard time uh, with this concept? I think it's very, very difficult to ask folks to go to, from zero to supervise use site. I think when we can have the conversation, especially about what syringe access programs are, how we have the relevancy of people who inject drugs, we have the resources, the referrals, we can get people into treatment, not today, maybe a few days from now. Um, you know, they need IDs and that could be a barrier for folks. When we can talk about that and what, we what happens is, is we talk all the way about all those things and that it's not legal for them to use on my property. So we send folks a few blocks away to an alley or a business bathroom and inject there often alone. So where we have a lot of our education is we're really talking with folks about what we are and what we simply aren't. And what we see as supervised use site in Denver would simply be a program arm of an already flourishing syringe access program. We have the relevancy of people who inject. We have everything else that people need. The drugs are pre-obtained, meaning they're not bought or sold on site, right? But I can't get people into treatment if they're not alive. And when people are alive, there's hope. So we have to have those conversations to talk about, you know, what syringe access programs are and what they aren't. We are in the midst of an overdose epidemic. If stigma, shame and incarceration worked, we'd have wrapped this puppy up years ago. So I'm in reality working with folks today for a healthier and safer them. My folks are the experts and we're saying that we need this in our community. Right now, every alley business, you know, business bathroom and park is an injection site already. We already have them. They're just not supervised. So help me understand the exact difference between what occurs at your facility right now versus mm -hmm. what could occur mm -hmm. um, with the supervised use sites, mm -hmm. because you already provide um, syringes, clean mm -hmm. syringes, mm -hmm. um, among other uh, resources. Mm -hmm. And do people, uh, so I, I assume that people currently aren't allowed to use drugs um, at your facility right now, right. is that right? Mm -hmm. So is the main difference um, Obviously, syringes would continue to be available at the supervised mm -hmm. use site, but they would simply allow to be uh, allowed to uh, use these drugs um, under some level of supervision. What what does that supervision look like? Correct. So what we see it as is, like I said, like in basically be like you know wherever the location would be in the back room or something. And they're set up like booths, like stainless steel booths. Um, it decreases the acquisition of HIV and hepatitis C because all of the equipment is new because it's gotten on site. It promotes proper syringe disposal because after they use, they dispose right there. It reduces skin tissue infections because if I'm about to inject in an alley behind a dumpster, I may not use that alcohol pad. But we know that anytime people break their skin, they're at risk of infection. And then if they do overdose, not just on heroin, but stimulants. So those present more as a heart attack stroke or seizure, but if you can intervene in time, you can recognize and respond to that, then people can be alive. So simply the trained professional would be in there um, just making sure that people aren't taking too long, that nobody's overdosing, and then people will use and then get up and either hang out in the drop-in area or go on with their day. 
You know, most of the time, if heroin users are using for any period of time, they're not getting high. They're going from minus physical withdrawal pain, the flu times a thousand, to normal or well. So when they're in withdrawal is when it's physically painful, and which is why you might see somebody in an alley or a park because they are just trying to get their medicine to get well or normal. Um, and so that's simply what we'd be asking there. Right now we have everything else, and then they go a few blocks away. How do people who are using drugs find out about you? And then how do you build trust with them? Sure. So we have about 75% of our folks are referred by a friend. So it's hard to walk into a party by yourself. Imagine walking into the exchange. 91% of our folks have never been to a syringe access program before. We are currently happening in 35 states and 60 countries, but it's very counterintuitive to folks because they often think cops sit out front and profile. And in other states, cops do sit out front and profile. Denver Police Department doesn't do that for us. Um, five of my uh, staff members are current and former injectors. Six of the eight of us are currently or formerly homeless. Uh, seven of the eight volunteered with us before working there. So we have a really great relationship with those that we serve. We have a nice opportunity where all eight staff plus three interns plus three volunteers a morning are on site working to make sure that we have not only a safe drop-in, but can do those resources and referrals and then run Colfax Avenue too. Colfax can be such a handful. <laughs> Circling back to supervised use sites and the action that Denver has mm -hmm. taken this past year to approve the uh, a pilot site, that measure passed with a 12 to 1 support mm -hmm. uh, in city council. And there's a, an election uh, here just mm -hmm. this year. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, I think you'd agree, this is still a controversial um, issue with, with some folks, yet there was this resounding vote in favor of the creation of this pilot program. Mm -hmm. Why was there such strong support for this idea? I think in, in Denver in particular, and why we wanted to do Denver City Council first and then statewide legislation was to give a nod to state legislators that a city is ready to go. You know, a lot of, like I said, if state legislators don't have syringe access in their community, this seems like a really tall ask. Um, part of the um, issue of why it was so uh, overwhelmingly supported is it's really an urban issue at this time, right? We're on top of each other. If you're in a rural area, you can be behind a building or in the middle of a field. I mean, where we know that people are struggling is businesses and business owners. And so we had about 50 businesses that signed on that said, yes, I'm tired of being a bathroom monitor. I'd like to try this. And so Denver City Council pays attention to business owners, right? We also have people in recovery, you know, treatment providers, recovery, medical societies, you know, a lot of folks saying, yes, we need to give this a try because we know folks are struggling. For example, at the King Supers at 13th and Spear, there's blue lights in the bathroom. There's blue lights in the bathroom, so you can't find your veins because they had so many people injecting in there. Uh, we know that RTD bus station took off the doors of their bathroom stalls recently because they'd had so much public injecting and people overdosing. So we know that people are struggling. We also know that they're not talking about it with each other. So we kind of became that nexus. So it was, you know, it was a little easier sell on a local level because also city council members and their offices get a lot of calls about public injecting. And what about the federal government? You know, after um, there was talk of this at the local level, uh, the Trump administration said that they would oppose um, any such effort. 
similar to um, what they said about marijuana, I'd point out. Mm -hmm. What um, what should we do uh, about that, given that any effort to create a pilot program may in some ways be futile because of that federal opposition? Mm-hmm. So in, uh, I believe it was October 2017, the President of the United States declared a public health emergency for opioid use and the overdose epidemic. So we did feel like there there is some hope in kind of thinking that they might want to push forward with something like this in the midst of an overdose epidemic, and especially when fentanyl is present in the United States. Yes, it would be out of federal compliance, much like marijuana. And so we, you know, we're Colorado's done things out of federal compliance before, but we simply couldn't wait for the feds to be able to push forward with this on a local level. Where we can have traction and have those conversations is not only um, at a local level, but also with the state, and then hoping to make a nod to the feds to say, we need to be able to try this. And I can assure you, Colorado is not the only one pushing forward with this. Seattle, San Francisco, Philadelphia, New York City, uh, New Jersey just put in a bill. So this, this will be happening in the United States here in the next few years. We're certainly not trying to be first, maybe third, um, but we are trying to uh, go the routes of, of trying to, to get more buy-in from folks. And some people will simply never understand. And that's fine if that doesn't affect you. I don't want this to have to affect you for you to care, but that's fine, right? But I do know that it's not only affecting people who use drugs and the people that love them, but also the larger community, right? The, the parks, the, the uh, business bathrooms, things like that. And they're already doing this up in Vancouver, Canada. What is your understanding of what that experience has been like and how have you learned from it in crafting what this would look like here in Denver? So we've looked to, so we have a lot of data and evidence to show um, that this is working in 10 countries, 63 cities and 102 total sites. I think there's been a lot of media recently about Vancouver, but there's also four sites in Toronto. Um, You know, it's happening in uh, Spain, uh, the Netherlands, Germany has like 20 sites, Australia. So I just want to be really clear that when we look at this, we look at it from a variety of of data and evidence, Sydney, um, to show that it doesn't increase crime in the area, right? Much like syringe access programs don't increase crime in the area, it actually promotes public safety, right? We want people from publicly injecting to be inside. Um, when they're inside and when they're able to inject on site, then we can continue those conversations that we simply can't if they're in withdrawal and need to go a few blocks away. Um, so we've seen, you know, it, it becomes this gateway to treatment, much like syringe access programs too. Um, we can, you know, people can be kept an eye on. They don't overdose on site. No one's ever died of an overdose at any of these places. There's not a lot of businesses that can say that. Libraries can't really say that. And so um, that's something we want to try because we're losing a lot of people. We're losing a lot of people. And like I said, fentanyl is here in Colorado. It's not here like the East and West, but it's definitely here. And that just puts people at higher risk of overdosing. So um, we look to all sorts of places to see what's going on. And this has been proven as like a kind of like the gold standard evidence-based intervention when working with people who inject drugs, when you have a lot of the larger community saying, I don't want people publicly injecting, I don't want people injecting in my bathrooms, I don't want inappropriately discarded syringes, I want them into treatment, then I then you should support this because that supports all of that. And we can all agree that there should be ex- uh, treatment expansion, um, but also housing is substance use treatment too. People decrease their use when they're in a safe space. For example, a lot of what happens in Denver for folks that are homeless and people who inject is a lot of times in the winter they'll inject meth so they don't have to go into the shelters so they can walk around the city and don't lay down and freeze to death. 
So injecting meth as a harm reduction measure for somebody in our community who doesn't feel safe or want to go into the shelters. Let's talk about you for a minute. Okay. You graduated with a degree in communications and a minor in women's studies. Mm -hmm. How did you go from that to this? How long is this show? <laughs> Well, I I originally didn't even want to go to college. I wanted to do the Peace Corps at 18, but you had to have a college degree. And I was like, fine. So I think I'd always known I was going to be um, doing something that would serve folks in some capacity. Um, but where I really found my voice was about, uh, let's see, 07, so about, oh my goodness, 12 years ago, uh, I was an AmeriCorps at an HIV agency in California um, that had a syringe access program, which just blew my mind. I'd never been around anything like that before. At the same time, my husband and I were homeless for seven months in our van, um, and I'd never been so busy, never had so much lack of sleep, never been so angry and bitter. Um, and it just kind of awoke this activist voice. So once I was housed after the seven months, um, I was I haven't been able to stop since. So I became a campaign manager for a woman who ran for county supervisor in California, who's still a county supervisor and worked at an overnight homeless shelter. And then I all kind of culminated to this gig. And I can't imagine being anywhere else because what I get to do is I get to work direct service, and not many executive directors get to do that, uh, with folks in the drop-in Monday through Friday. Um, and then I get to do, you know, agency liaison and then, you know, push forward with policies at the Capitol and, you know, kind of be that buffer and that bridge to access with unlikely allies such as healthcare providers and law enforcement. I can hear your passion. I think everybody listening can hear your passion. Uh, you've been doing this since 2009. And again, I can hear your passion, but I don't entirely understand your passion uh, mm. just because, you know, it's not like this if This issue has been getting better um, in the last 10 years, but you seem to have this pep in your step uh, to, <laughs> <laughs> to do more, which is so admirable. But I, I have to ask of what keeps you going uh, so hard um, on this issue? Hmm. Well, I did get most spirited in high school. So I've always been a woo girl, you know what I mean? Um, there's, well, it's success looks so different for a lot of people. So I, what I love about harm reduction is that I, you know, can walk with you for a healthier and safer you today. And you're going to tell me exactly what that looks like. And I'm going to cheer you on right here. So if that's a living a life for recovery, great. Let's push forward together. If that's not going into the emergency department anymore with abscesses and starting to use alcohol pads, that's awesome. So there's always a lot of life to to celebrate. I think a lot of times people think that, you know, what we do and who we serve and, you know, kind of what's going on is really sad and depressing. There's so much life that happens in there and so much, um, you know, we mourn those that we've lost. And, and I think part of it too is that if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And so I think a lot of it for me is that I'm tired of calling the coroner's office. I'm tired of doing, um, you know, getting yelled at about people publicly injecting, right? I've got, have I got a policy initiative idea for you, right? And it's just having those conversations with people that just don't get it. Um, but it's it's strange for me because I get a I get a lot of people that start paying attention just because we can do the tours. So what I like about doing policy as a direct service provider is that I can lure big dogs in for a tour to see what we are and then what we simply aren't. And then we can talk about how we can push forward today. Um, there's not a lot of good media representation of syringe access programs in the community. 
I think a lot of times they're like dark and dingy houses, you know, things like that. Um, there's a lot of life that happens. We're open for Christmas and New Year's. Um, some people aren't invited home. We're your family because we we engage people to be a part of a community. And when you're a part of a community, there are some rules that you have to follow, but it also incentivizes really great behavior. Like in the last, gosh, seven years of being a syringe access program and 16 of being an agency, we've had over 8,000 folks sign up with us. We see between 120 and 150 people per morning, and we've only kicked out maybe 15 for life, which we feel like is pretty good considering folks go out of their way because this is the one safe space in the entire world. They can talk realistically about their drug use. So I get to be that advocate slash nag to be able to push forward, to chip away at, you know, harmful drug policies um, that affect my folks, but also also, you know, I can be that um, bridge with other unlikely allies. And then I get to hang with really awesome people every morning who care about themselves and care about their health. So a lot of times in, in the media in particular, there's a lot of like misinformation because sometimes people just use that one drug user that they may know who might have been in their family. And then that's all drug users. I don't have that, you know, like I, I can kind of serve people from an arm's distance of where it's like, there can be a lot of boundaries, but also we can push forward for a healthier and safer you. And I'm glad you came in today and I'm invested in your health and you're invested in your health and we can do this. Opiates and other drugs have been with us for centuries mm -hmm. and um, they're not going anywhere no matter what we do. No. <laughs> um, but um, I think we're all striving to make a better situation mm -hmm. out of what we have right now. And so what do you think is a realistic picture of success within your lifetime mm -hmm. on this issue at a population level. Where can we, where, what level of improvements can we get to? Mm -hmm. Well, after we get the supervised use site, obviously. Um, what I appreciate too is that Denver's pushing forward with LEAD, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, which will divert low-level drug users and sex workers to services and not incarceration. I think we're going to have to decriminalize at some point because the felonies are really uh, branding people for life. And we know that, you know, the war on drug users has been incredibly racist and classist and destroyed communities. And like I said, branded people for life where you can't get housing or a job. And then they're like, why can't you flourish? Right. Um, so I think at that point, part of the issue with decrim is that the, the supply continues to be unpredictable. And, and that's what's killing people is an unpredictable drug supply. So at some point there may be legalization. I don't know, that's, that's a long way off, but we can definitely start having those conversations, especially since people don't know what's in their drugs. And now that fentanyl's present, it puts them at higher risk of overdosing. Um, I think, you know, in, in, in regards to some of the homelessness that goes into that, I think housing uh, people has become way cheaper than incarcerating them. And it has decreased a lot of their drug use too. Um, I think having more on-demand uh, substance use treatment, but also mental health support too. Um, we have a lot of folks that are really struggling in our community who are schizophrenic or have schizoaffective disorder um, and nothing dulls the voices quite like heroin. So we need to have a lot of conversations about that. We also need to have a lot of conversations about childhood trauma um, and uh, you know being able to push forward for healthier and safer folks. So, so it feels like it kind of runs the gamut. Um, People are always going to use drugs, always, always, always. And I think um, 
what I appreciate is, is that when they come to a syringe, if they're injecting and if they're coming to a syringe access program, they're being healthier and safer. And that's when we can create this relationship. That's when things could potentially change. And what happens is the stigma and shame keep people away from resources and referrals for so long. And it keeps it so underground. And when things are underground, that, that makes them truly dangerous. Lisa Rayville, keep up the good work. And thank you so much for oh, chatting with us. Thank you so much for having me today. There it is. Thanks again to Lisa Rayville. She was great. I feel like she should get her own podcast. She seems well suited to this format. But if you do like this podcast, and I hope you do, you're still listening, subscribe. That that makes it so you get every week. You don't have to remind yourself. It just kind of downloads to your device or your computer or wherever you listen. Also, rate us. If you like us, tell us so. If you don't like us, skip rating us. All right. I'll see you next week. <laughs>